Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm your host, Kevin DeYoung, and I'm going to introduce our guest in just a moment, but I want to welcome you to all of our listeners. Glad to have you with us. And as always, thank our sponsor, Crossway. And today I want to mention new book by Dustin Binge, The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. That seems like a timely book to reflect upon the glory and the beauty of the church. Obviously, the church always has imperfections, but to reflect on the loveliest place. So this is a new book just coming out this week from Crossway by Dustin Benge, uh, B-E-N-G-E. Probably seen the name before, The Loveliest Place. So thank you to Crossway. And our guest, I'm really really excited about. I've read a number of his things, and in particular, the book that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Dr. Wilfred McClay. Uh, we'll, we'll go with Bill, since he's a, a, a humble scholar. And uh, we're going to talk about his book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. There's too much bio here to really do Dr. McClay justice, but he is currently the Victor Davis Hanson Chair in Classical History and Western Civilization at Hillsdale College. If you never heard of Hillsdale, you should look it up there in southeastern Michigan, a wonderful Christian liberal arts school for uh, many years before that. He taught at Oklahoma. He serves on all sorts of boards of directors, ethics and public policy center, senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. He's written lots of books and received numerous awards, lots of articles as well, and first things in other places. His book, The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, 1994, was a winner of the 1995 Award in Intellectual History from the Organization of American Historians. So he's a very well-respected, accomplished historian, and very grateful, Bill, to have you on. So welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and, and uh as you know, because we talked a little bit before the interview, I'm an admirer, we recently acquainted with an admirer. So, well, thank uh, you. I, although I wonder, you know, uh, you did make you know, you know, you did scrape the bottom of the barrel in getting me on. But um, well, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm very, very pleased to have you on. I wonder before we talk about history, if you can give us a little personal history. Tell us. Where are you from and a few of the places you've been, how you got to Hillsdale recently? Yeah, well, uh, I was born in the Midwest. I was born in Illinois, but uh, grew up in Maryland. Um, I sort of think uh, of myself as being from both places in a, in a way. Maryland, Maryland was from the age of five on, really. I got all my education in Maryland, uh, uh, both college went to St. John's College in Annapolis, and then Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, two more different institutions with regard to mine. Um, St. John's, the great books, uh, at, at a place where you're discouraged from reading secondary scholarship. Yeah, right. You know, you're encouraged to read the text and confront. Eva Brand, the great uh, doyen, doyeness, if that's the right term, right. of uh, St. John's, uh, said, if you have a long introduction in your book, rip it out. <laughs> so the idea was to encounter the text correctly, yeah. unmediated. And then Hopkins is the, you know, based on the model of the uh, research university of the 19th century, uh, the first uh, in the United States. Uh, it's retained a lot of that extremely 
professional oriented uh, way. You, it wasn't the place you went uh, to indulge your intellectual curiosity. Progress building off of of the future, and uh, although I managed to indulge my intellectual curiosity plenty, and uh, more importantly, I met my wife. Uh, oh, very good. Uh, but ever since Hopkins minute, you know, it's more than redeemed. Kind of memory. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah, and and actually, one thing I think your listeners may be interested—I was not, um, I was not brought up in the church. Uh, I did have a sort of relationship with the Presbyterian Church, Severna Park, Maryland. Uh, yeah. Uh, which uh, some of some of your listeners may may be from there, and uh, um, it it uh, but but I never was confirmed. Uh, my parents were, I think, my mother in particular is in the process of losing faith. Mm. That just this has a happy end, but uh, it and uh, so I wasn't really brought up in any of that. I went to St. John's that I started taking the Bible seriously. And uh, started reading Aquinas and Augustine and Anselm and Kierkegaard, who destroyed. Oh, really? Bad fear and trembling. Oh, yeah. Changed the, the way I thought about the Bible. Uh, and uh, so I, I, it still was not a Christian. So I, I would look at my scene and say, I, I can't affirm those things. I mean, I, I don't even know what it means to affirm. So um, it was a slow process. I went into academic life. I taught at Tulane University in New Orleans. And uh, <clears throat> it was at Tulane that I had serious convert experience of and, uh, um So, uh, which happened in all places in the Episcopal Church. People still get converted there. Wow. (laughs) That's right. So so I've remained in Anglican uh, on and off. I've actually, there was a period of time which I was a CA husband, very happily so. In Maryland, in fact. What what church was that? I lived there for a while on a sabbatical, um, and we were looking after my mother. Okay. Stroke. So so, uh, anyway, that's kind of. It's a big part of my task, and it's a joyful and interesting task, but it has been to take an essentially secular formation, intellectual formation, and try to sort of do a a Romans 12 kind of rethink of all of it uh, in in light of the renewal of my mind. And I'm still working on it. Um, I still, people like I'm just assuming you had an early and profound formation in the. I I, uh, I I'm actually less envious than I used to be. I'm still envious, but I do think that I have one gift: uh, see the world as the unbelieving see it. Huh. I can really grasp. It was very hard for people who brought up in the faith see the world as those who don't just don't believe it just doesn't yeah um i get that um 
Yeah, that's a real that's a real gift, and I think it comes through even in in your writing, which is really clear and uh, scholarly, but very accessible. And we we have a few overlaps. We didn't talk about this. I was born in Illinois. I was born south side of Chicago, and uh, I got married in Maryland. My my father my father in law, who's now with the Lord, he was a Navy chaplain. He was working at Bethesda. Lived in Annapolis. Uh, my wife's parents oh my. went went to uh, PCA Church in Severna Park. Uh, oh, we that's got, a great church. Yeah, yeah, we we got married Glenn in Parkinson. Laurel. Right. Glenn Parkinson was a pastor. I always thought of him as the reincarnation of Jonathan Edwards. He was such a good <laughs> High praise. Preacher. Yeah. Yeah. And then well, I wonderful. Yeah. So and I mentioned I was in East Lansing for 13 years and uh, at Hillsdale was, you know, hour and a half down the road and think very highly of it. I, I actually before we get into your book on American history, w- one of the one of your pieces, I, I've quoted you many times and I have given you credit for it, but you've showed up in it you've showed up in sermons. My name is Ton Philon, as they say in Greek, the things of friends are common. Oh well thank you. Uh but it's your article from twenty seventeen, the Hedgehog Review, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It's been really helpful. You want to say something about what prompted you writing oh. that article and what it was about? It, it was something, uh, it was really a one-off uh, in a way. Uh, I, I was um, I was intrigued by this very, the very question that the, uh, that the title puts forward. So why, why does it, is so much of, I'll, I'll tell you the moment that, that, that the idea of, it began to crystallize was when I was at Tulane and we did uh, a search uh, and you know it was it, it, at that time there was not a single black person on the faculty at Tulane which was a disgrace and not something you can easily sort of uh, slough off onto other considerations so there was enormous amount of pressure on the history department to hire somebody with the, the right pigmentation and uh and cultural background. I don't want to trivialize it. I, I actually, even though I think affirmative action has been on balance a bad thing, uh, I think it, it has done accomplished many good things. And uh, uh, it's a whole discussion. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but at any rate, I we got to the point where you know I was the one conservative, and and then when I became a Christian, that was even worse. So I was this sort of person of no account uh, and being very junior and all. Uh, uh, but um, all my colleagues got into fighting about who was the more liberal and who who was showing implicit racism in their attitudes about this candidate or that candidate. It was just an astonishing spectacle of all of us um, wanting the same thing. We all wanted to sort of break the color barrier in our department. There's no doubt about good intentions. They are very wonderful. But it devolved into this show. Everyone accusing uh, one another of being insufficiently woke would be the term now. But uh, right. um, And uh, it, it, it made an enormous impression on me. I thought, you know, this is something that driven by very powerful forces that have um, a moral component to it. 
uh, and that the people involved in it are not even aware. So it got me thinking, and I and it just it's one of those things you think about for years. Um, it wasn't on my agenda right about, but I'm, I, Kevin, I'm so glad you mentioned it now because I'm just pivoting towards. Uh, I I wrote that article in the Hedgehog Review. Got a huge response. I mean, there were uh, I, I got lecture invitations from Australia mm. to to yeah. on the basis that I don't. It was partly because David Brooks wrote about it and get some the New York Times. It it, it goes out uh, and uh, um, and there were some other people. So uh, hit all those channels. Yeah, but it it was. Way it was just ahead of the, of the, you say twenty seventeen. I mean, I, I, maybe it wasn't ahead of, but certainly was not at sort of the peak tide of wokeness that has now engulfed us, uh, and we're trying to make sense of. Uh, and uh, uh, and by the way, I, I you know I I I wouldn't normally talk about it. That are woke. Right. And there are genuine moral, one of the things I tried to bring out in that article are genuine moral um, issues. I, I don't ridicule my students who uh, are caught up in a sense that if on environmental issues, I talk about that a lot, they really sort of, in a way, don't have any right to exist because yeah. they're carbon footprint, adding to the problem, they're consuming. Other living things, which is unjust, even if it's plants. I mean, you know, you can, it, if you don't, if you have a sort of vestigial uh, Christian conscience, biblical conscience, but no way of dealing with or expiating the right. understanding, understanding sin as part of the human condition. Uh, you are in a very bad place. Yeah, and, and that's what was so you know important about the article. And it came out in yeah. 2017, and I referenced it in some lectures I gave about the Reformation and about the ongoing importance of Luther and justification, because as yeah. you said, we're not done with guilt. In fact, we're awash in guilt. You go online, Neo-Puritans, yeah. that gives Puritans a bad name, but there's guilt everywhere. But your point yes. was, we have... A, a, a basic Christian conception of being guilty, but we don't any longer have the Christian mechanism to atone for that guilt. So it's it's yes. the worst of all worlds. Yeah, it really is. It really is the worst. Of all I, that, that's well put. I may steal that from you, uh, sure. but with attribution, though. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So so anyway, I was I was actually decided I was going to write a book about it, and I started working, and then along came this. Um, I really was approached about doing this textbook um, in American history because there, there, and in a funny way, it fits in perfect with guilt theme. I had, I had felt this was going to be a complete diversion, but I finally was talked into doing it, um, and it really ended up being a book uh, that attempted to account for our our many national sins and. Transgression in in an un, um, 
unwhitewashed, un, un, that's probably the wrong term, yeah, right. un, you know, unsugarcoated way. Um, uh, but within a larger perspective of what's magnificent in our history and what is possible yet, and that hope, uh, a hope in its many acceptations is really at the heart of it, that, that there is something uh, special about America in this sense of possibility that yeah. in our times of greatest uh, discouragement and woe, uh, is this sense that we can can change it and change our uh, and just as the people who came here uh, decade after decade, that century after century, believed that they didn't have to be condemned to the conditions of their birth, and that's yeah. I think is fundamental in American assertion as you're like um so um yeah so well, I, I i i had a hard time getting started on it because and my wife can recall we, we went to the beach in the summer and uh i i was gonna stay there for a month that we'd never done it's too much <laughs> but but um and uh we left early but i had they managed to write three or four pages. Um, ridiculous. But that time was crucial to calibrate um, away from the my academic style uh, to to writing something that is that was really meant to be directed at just regular general readers, Americans, uh, and uh, it, although the target audience was high school students. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always thought of it as as having something more, sort of more of a reach, uh, and uh, so in a way, I'm not that surprised that the main readership of the book so far has been adults, uh, um, people uh, the age of thirty over the age of fifty, right. maybe even. But but um, it's finding its way in the school, and I'm happy. Good. Well, let's but what jump I wanted into- to do was to make it. That also to be very, very approachable, readable. So that's actually very hard because that's true. You, if you're, you know how it is in your own, in your historian, you, you, your theologian, um, you always want to explain everything, partly to show to the learned audience, hey, I know about all that stuff. I, you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read and, that uh, book. Okay. I know what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. And then my, foot, my footnotes are, you know, things there um but partly because you do sense the complexity of the subject you want and you want to reflect you can't indulge either one of those things writing a book like land of hope um you have the courage to leave things out and know that people are gonna say where's this where's it what 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 what?" and uh you don't say enough about this about the lithuanian coal miners in east kentucky you know (laughs) okay i left that out yeah, that's right. Um, well, well, one of the things that I really appreciated about, and you've hit on it already, you know, the title, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Some people, given our cultural moment, would say, oh, how dare you? Land of Hope. Are, do you, yeah. Don't you know all of, don't you know what we did to the Native Americans? And don't you know Jim Crow? But what I appreciate is you obviously do know those things, and you... I mean, I have a mark here. You talk about, you know, the Trail of Tears is just one of the most shameful 
episodes in American history. So you don't, as you said, you don't sugarcoat it. You don't pretend that for America to be a land of hope is a land of perfection or anything close to it. And it's not just a clearing of the throat. Yeah, 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 we did some bad things. And yet you do a very good job of holding together a a, a basic cohesive story around this theme that that it's a place that people have wanted to come to because there's possibilities and at its worst it's an inconsistency with itself it's it's a self hypocrisy that there are noble ideals there are real rooted uh virtue in the american experiment from 1776 that 1619 is is not the the real genesis of of course that matters too but the the from lincoln to mlk they're always looking back to the founding and to the importance there and the ideals there and it was actually some of the southern confederates who said no 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 we don't really believe in in that founding story no the the mainstream has been there's an important story to be told about america and i think you tell it so well because you don't pretend that it's all good and yet you don't go to the other end and say, well, now we can't do anything but self-flagellate. I- I've said before, we've moved away from hagiography to hamartiography, that being the word for sin. All we can tell <laughs> is the story about our sins, <laughs> not as saints. So h- how did you think about doing that? Because that's when I've recommended the book to people often, that's what I've really been struck by, is how you tell a story of hope without pretending that there aren't really ugly spots in the story. No, I, I mean, I do think you have to have, um, you, you, you have to have a perspective that's outside. You've gone through graduate study in history and you, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to communicate to others who haven't had that experience, but there really is a way in which, um, first of all, graduate school is an enormous kind of instrument of conformity <laughs> that people um, come out of it. And it really have to, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of talented writers, historians who will aim this conversation and that you have to kind of um, divest yourself of what you learn. You know, it, it's not that it wasn't of value. It, it's um, sort of monomaniacal. Uh, in its obsession with Altfine, Hamartia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love that word. Did you invent that? I mean, that's, that's as far as word. I know, I did. Yes. Ham- yes. Hamartiography, uh, yes. Okay. I, that's my second set. The, the, yeah. Well. But, uh, no, that's wonderful. Uh, um, and uh, you, you have to, uh, there's, a, there's a, it's professional deformation almost mm. involved in the field opera. And, uh, um, if you're not saying something, if you're not writing a dissertation some way critical of America or white America, um, and, and in some ways the being critical is more important than the affirming mm-hmm. of the other. You know, I, I, I love uh, dissertation that works that, 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 that rescue African-American writers from obscurity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's really hard to where America's coming out with a bunch of writers that nobody's ever heard of and 
they're not really all of the highest order, obviously, partly. Um, but I'm that kind of thing. I'm willing to to uh, to undergo some overextension on that in the in the name of something positive, covering positive legacy. That we're not aware of, uh, or more generally, we're not. Aware of. But it's the taking. It's the sort of making white and. I, I was told the other day that someone on the staff at National Humanities now is making sort of deconstructing mm-hmm. whiteness a kind of major theme. This to me is just, it's ridiculous in addition to being uh, not very productive. Uh, so I think you have to, 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 to take um, the, the, the critical elements for what they're worth have to to simplify it somewhat. You have to read Howard Zinn's book on yeah. the People's History of the United States, which is probably the most text out there. And then um, realize, well, there's a difference between saying that Columbus was not a not a, a man that was a man of his time. Um, it was not a saint to making him into a deep, right, opted an entire. Um, it, this is wrong. Actually, it's wrong in terms of a, a larger sort of historical judgment. Uh, but you have to that. You have, and I look. I think something else that um, I think people have appreciated about that. I try to be generous towards the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to in, in a way that something like the sixteen nineteen project, mainly ungenerous uh, and and tendentious in its depiction of and I don't even want to pick on that because that's it's that's very typical there's a, just a uh, sense that people of the 17th century or whatever previous century by all rights should be held to the standards of the present uh, and if their statues uh, are the city square um have been sitting there uh, um, on a cost, and it's time to bring them down. It's time right. to, you know, we, how can we admire uh, um, someone like Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned before. Right. Our own brush with the institution. Um, how do we admire and Frederick Douglass, the great black American, a great orator, um, has been. Uh, of his statues was torn down the insufficient women's rights and deemed by the president. Famously spoke at Hillsdale. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. we have a statue of him right by my office. I walk by it every day. It's very Not many places have statues of Jefferson... Frederick Douglass, Ronald Reagan, I forget which other, Winston Churchill, Margaret maybe. Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. Margaret yeah. Thatcher. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's in, in Madison. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's a sort of anonymous Civil War soldier. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, and, and Hillsdale was, from the very beginning, admitted women and, and uh, people of and all Founded by, by so, abolitionists, right? Yes. So, so it's, we're very proud of that here. And, uh, um, but generosity toward the past, you know, Jefferson, for example, I think very complicated man, um, 
inconsistent, man. It's, it's, but I try to, I don't really do this. I try to find that in some way we should admire him for his inconsistencies because he at least had, you know, there was a, there was a revolution in moral sensibility taking place in the Western on this issue. And, uh, he got the, he, he understood the, the revolution or the ideational part of that. What he couldn't do is bring his life into harmony. And, uh, you know, this is a very human problem. But I, I also say, and this is, I think this is part of being a good historian is to know when to quit <laughs> historicizing and, um, uh, or talking about the, the you know, the pretentious assertion of the 1619 project that, that slavery and anti-black racism is in our DNA, which is a, a stupid thing to say about it. Sure, it doesn't have DNA. Uh, um, culture has inertia, maybe, but it doesn't right. have DNA. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, who are we, given the, the, the disharmony in our way to be critical? I mean, we float on this ocean of consumer, cheap consumer goods and cheap everything in the Western world because of a whole class of people in on the other side of the world who we never see horse mm-hmm. enslaved in every meaningful sense of the word. Slavery hasn't disappeared from the world. Uh, it's, 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 it's been made illegal. That doesn't, that doesn't mean it's a country like Mauritania, 25%, according to the Constitution. Um, but why is the New York Times obsessing about 400 years ago? Um, and there was a problem right in That's right. That we can actually do something about it. And the scale, actually, arguably, of our, our complicity in Chinese slavery is so much more than than the Atlantic slave trade, you know, just in terms of numbers, in terms of the, the, the kind of, uh, G, you know, the, the, the gross um, uh, economic. That's uh, right. And we've just gotten I, through. I didn't really get off on this, but I, no, I think it's no, an example it... of why we, lo- we, we lose perspective when we obsess over the past. And it's not as if the past is a bunch of minor peccadilloes. I'm not saying that. It's horrifying. But slavery has been a feature of human civilization, uh, you know, in, in most places. It's the rule rather than the exception. Now, Sean Lentz, his wonderful book on uh, uh, why the Constitution not pro-slavery not, makes this point that um, it, it the remarkable thing is a society that frees itself from this scourge and that really begins to try to live out uh, an ideal of of equality, which I think for us all really means seeing the image of God in every single. That's right, and and there are real important theological intersections. You mentioned image of God. You also talk about in your book. You talk about the the founders and their basic views of humanity and how they're uh, were shaped, whether implicitly or explicitly, by Calvinist, Augustinian views 
of the human person. It was not a Rousseauian view of humankind that's basically good and human nature is malleable and civilization corrupts. No, it was a view that you know, famous Federalist Papers 10 or 51, ambition needs to be made to counteract ambition because yeah. government is not run by angels. And yes. I did my I did my historical work. This is my one beef with the book. I'm not sure if you mentioned John Witherspoon or not. I don't. I don't. Oh, well, that's okay. About it. Um, yeah, that's okay. So I did my PhD on Witherspoon. And so I'm, I'm in, focused more on his Scottish career. But certainly he had... In effect, a very direct impact on Madison, the father of Constitution. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. it's so that whether Madison was, you know, what sort of Christian he was remains to be seen, but certainly a basic distrust of the human person unfettered from any other constraints. And I think yeah. that really shapes too how we do history and what we expect to find in history. So, like you said. When we do history, American history or any kind of history, they're not just minor peccadillos. It's not just, yeah, yeah, a few mistakes. I mean, they're really egregious sins because human beings are really egregious sinners. And it's not at yes. all to placate those sins, but we should we should go with the expectation that there's going to be a lot of sin here. And so the question is always yes. not just how were people— but how were they compared to others, or how were they compared to their time, or what were the 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 known alternatives to acting the way that they did? We can all say, well, we wish they would have acted like people in 2022. Well, in some ways that would have been good, and they would certainly look askance at us in some ways that we don't act like we're 1776 or whatever the year is. So if we have a proper anthropology, we shot we should look at the past expecting, of course, when you have Millions of people over hundreds of years, whether you call it American history, white evangelicalism, whatever you want to look at, you're going to have a lot of bad things to deal with. But the question is, what what did they see as their own motivation? What were the options available to them? And how did they understand themselves? And how do we try to fairly, you say at the end here, this line, was it from a uh, Butterfield about the historian is a recording angel, not a haunting demon. Yeah. 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 From Herbert Butterfield, not a hanging judge. Yeah. And so you said, while I try to be objective, I've not claimed to be neutral in all respects. There's a crucial difference. So you say this book is offered as a contribution to the making of American citizens, a patriotic endeavor, as well as a scholarly one. But you say two things, uh, celebration and criticism, and those are not necessarily enemies. And I think any one of us, whether official historians or just erstwhile interested people trying to make sense of the past, should keep those two things in mind. Do, do you sense, you're, you're a professional historian, I'm not, but do you sense that we've really lost the plot on this with kind of the guild of historians? I mean, is there- yeah, Oh yeah, I do. I do think we have. And I think that the guild has sort of decided um, that there is no plot. Um, That's there's a good merely way to put the it. story of sub, the plots of subgroups, which, you know, uh, one of my teachers at Pennsylvania, Ohio, one of the early uh, advocates seeing America as a more pluralistic society, where he wrote an information history. He was a very waspy guy himself. He had a great sense of sympathy. 
toward the end of his career, he wrote an essay in which he, you know, this is really getting out of hand. You know, the, the story of the subgroup, and I forget how he put it. The story of the subgroups has no meaning apart from the, the, mm. the larger story. You know, the plur the pluribus needs the uno yeah. to, to be pluribus rather than just a scatteration of things. Um, and, and it's a profound, simple, profound point. Um, and I think it, it's gone on. He, I think he was, at the end of his career, he would never have said this public. I had a conversation had some regrets about what had unleashed. Um, and there was one other attempt to uh, fill a bar of Harvard, big, much more pitched at um, fellow uh, historians. Uh, um, it was an attempt to sort of tell the whole of it. I don't really, I don't think it really succeeded. In the end, she's too dubious about the story to be convincing. Um, and and I say that with, with all and something in the question. I don't I don't know that it's succeeded. Um, I think you know you, you and, and the story is in some ways and I use this word without um, pejorative uh, intent, a myth. Mm. A myth being something well, one of the things I say in the introduction, near, near where were you reading? Uh, um, America's an aspirational country. And if you right. don't understand that, you don't take that into account in your account of America. Um, you're missing a, a, a whole dimension. And so the people who pound away, it's very tiresome. And the idea that American exceptionalism, there's a revolutionary idea of American exceptionalism. Look, I don't actually care that term, American exceptionalism, but I think, uh, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, it was a sociologist, Robert King Merton, I think, said that um, social facts are real, even if they are only believed to be real. That, mm -hmm. In other words, you have a whole society of people who believe in the exceptional character of society. It's a fact. It, it becomes a fact. It's a fact in our makeup. This is what I'm calling about the myth. A, a myth is not a falsehood, not a lie. I mean, I'm very much in the tradition of Lewis and Tolkien on right. this, that it is saying There math. are true myths. Yeah. yeah, there are true myths. There, and there are myths that are yet to be fulfilled. They're a kind of roadmap of the land, the unexplored, yet to be explored. Um, uh, and uh, and they're aspirational in character. Uh, I think that, and, and this is true in our individual lives, I think one way to break some of this barrier is to ask, um, and by analogy, think about the nation. And uh, um, the, the uh, uh, gosh, there's so many things to say about that, but, but, um, you mentioned the, the balance of affirmation and criticism, mm -hmm. celebration. And, and I do have a point in the book where I say, don't we do this in our personal relationships? Uh, um, <clears throat> doesn't a good relationship, good friendship, good marriage depend on the, the ability 
to both uh, affirm and criticize and accept criticism, accept yeah. affirmation. Sometimes people have trouble doing that. Um, uh, but but except those things are in a balance, just as in the life of the church, uh, celebration and repentance. That's right. Are 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 both part of having a God, uh, having a Lord accepts sentence and frees us That's right. from the concept of our senses. <laughs> what a cause for celebration. Um, That's right. Uh, so there's a balance of these things, and that criticism with exit out redemption, just pounding away um, at the um is <laughs> just to say it's not a very fruitful enterprise. And, well, no, uh, and and the people they're dead. They can't they can't repent. I don't believe in post mortem repentance. We, yeah. we, we can't change what they've done. And I I like you know just go back to the point you made about the myth, the the story of America. If if the only story we tell is celebration, well, that's not honest. But now if the only story we tell is denunciation. And the irony is, you point this out, I, I won't grab it, but I underlined it, both at the front and at the end of your book. You talk about American patriotism has typically been different than blood and soil kind of nationalism. And the irony is, if people want to just break down unrelentingly any sort of story of America as a land of hope, the alternative to to bring people together is going to be blood and soil. That that's it's not going to be an aspiration. It's not going to be an idea. It's not going to be uh, the best of the Western and the Christian moral tradition. But it's going to be what we're seeing now. It's going to be increasingly smaller and smaller identity groups because we have to find belonging. We need to be a. We all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. In that's one of, I think, the real dangers in continuing to pound away without any balance to it. The forces unleashed are not just going to be, you know, academic annoyance. They're going to have real world effects where people realize you know, somebody said, if you don't like if you didn't like the religious right, wait till you see the unreligious right. It's going to be a lot worse. Yeah, I think Rod Dreyer said that. Repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it, and it's it, it is, it's coming. It's here. It's uh, um, I I think um, you know, I think really in 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 we can recover this balance that you and I are talking about. Uh, so I know you got a hard I, hard stop. You yeah, got a hard stop coming yeah. up. Let, let can I ask you because I, I don't know when I'll have you again, and you're on the. Uh, the planning committee for the 250 year anniversary, right? For the country. I am. I am. Can you tell us any, uh, don't, don't divulge any secrets, you know, are you building a, a another statue of Liberty or, but how's that going? Is this going to be it's a going good badly. endeavor? Oh, it's boy. going badly because, uh, people, um, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a sense that this ought to, but some of the, it's, it's a very political committee, you know, the, the members of the, of the of the commission are were selected by uh, the the sort of top figures in the in the Congress. So I was selected by Paul Ryan and uh, others have 
you know, I, I actually think there's a core of us that very um, recognize that you know, that we're all sort of in this boat together. But there are definitely people who want to capture. Um, uh, so I, I think we haven't had um, we had a whole discussion. I think two hours or so about whether or not this event should be regarded as a celebration, a commemoration, a mere sort of marking of the date. Uh, and and I my my book was published shortly after we had this discussion, and I decided to show up at the meeting with you know thirty copies of the book and give them out there. Well, good. Chairman of the commission was so great. He said, I want to look about 15 minutes or so and squeeze it into the meeting and talk about it. So I used that. Hey, folks, if we don't do this as a celebration, you know, we, we are introducing the will and the needs of the American people. Uh, and, and we also are being blind to the, the extent to which this country, with all of its faults, has been uh, a beacon in human history. And that was very well received. I think everybody was happy to get a, a party favor copy of my book, but, but um, I, that, that hasn't, that hasn't lasted. I think actually the election may, um, the, the previous presidential election may have some favor uh, getting Democrats felt to finally. Right. Um, but it hasn't really given them any focus. We're, um, so I'm I'm a little discouraged at the moment, and you know we now have this uh, sex harassment thing that has come up. That it, it is, uh, I have no idea what it's about or whether it's um, has deeper causes. But mm-hmm. I, I I would ask your audience to pray. For that's a good that's a good request. Annual commission. It, it, we need your prayers. Uh, I, I accomplished that. Can I, I, I'm going to run over my own time. Tell you Please something. do. The point I've tried to make, my fellow is let's not think as um, the occasion where we have to settle all the scores uh, and say who was right in American history. Think of it instead as one of these big family reunions where every member of the Smiths clan from all see the shining sea and all they all come together and in this very crowd and there are people on different sides of, of the party who are not speaking there, there 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 are divorces there are you know all kinds of messiness of life and um and, and there are all kinds of arguments about who was right and who was wrong um let the arguments continue they will anyway right but instead let's come together and say, okay, we're, we're a big, quarrelsome bunch, but we are the Smith family. And now country is not a family. I know all these, an analogy is just an analogy, but I think it's a pretty darn good for thinking about, you know, like, we don't have to decide whether we are all now favor, in favor of gay marriage or all now in favor of, you know, <laughs> right to work or whatever. Um, we don't have to decide that. What we have to do is just pause for a moment and say, "Thank God for what we yeah. have." No, that's um, a, that, and what we that's what we've been given really by well put. 
the imperfect people of the past. Um, and may we be judged more gently than we are now judging them. That's right. Now, that's a wonderful analogy. It's a great way to, to end, too. And, you know, a family reunion, or we've all been to, you know, I remember going to my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. Yes. And you're there, and if if all of the, the siblings and grandkids and aunts and uncles are all fighting over their politics, and guys, this is... This is not what this day is about. You can do that on some other days. And so that's true as we approach the 250th anniversary of the country. And it's just a good way to look at life, whether it's history or not. There there are times, certainly, to duke it out. But so often, and the internet just instills this in us. Yes, and I feel I, like so yeah. much of the historiography has become this. It's, it's never... The, the wedding anniversary, it's never the family reunion. It's always an adjudication before the tribunal. And, and, and it's never Sunday worship either. That's it's, right. That, you're talking about a quality of mind that can set aside whatever the antagonism of the moment is and say, there's a larger context here. There's something larger. You know, I'm really about worried about my kid or I'm really worried about my car or, you know, putting a new roof on the house or whatever. Thinking about that Sunday morning and, and, and sit in the pew and listen to, to you preach that, that that's a whole different. And, and in a way that ability to set things aside and uh, name of some higher um, or at least more inclusive, uh, more abstract, yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, that, yeah. that, that 50s wedding anniversary, the big family. You know, we need that ability as human beings to say, to have to give ourselves the Sabbath from our everyday cares. That's that's well put. Um, and and that, that's why God laid out the plan for us. All we need. That's to right. Follow. That's right. Let me mention again uh, for our listeners: the land of hope. Here it is, very nicely done. Is it in paperback now? It is in paperback, yep. and also uh, I, I do want to make a pitch. We we are coming out with a young readers edition, yeah. which is for uh, middle school and, and and younger. We think fifth graders can handle it. it it's a um, great resource; so. adults can read it. So I I, I read it. It's uh, published by Encounter Books. They did a nice job. It's well laid out. There's other sorts of resources, so please check that out. Wilford McClay, Land of Hope. He has many other books and articles. And boy, I, I hope that one place or another we can sit down and talk. And maybe, maybe Miles we'll Smith, it. maybe even Daryl Hart will let me in the room and we can. Uh, oh, not, we you can know, chat. I, I just had dinner with him last night and he was okay, a, good. He was very pleasant. His well, wife good. was there. That, that always helps. Oh, uh, well, Andy yeah, there. that's she, right. She, that's she, right. You talk Johns Hopkins yeah. talk. <laughs> well, thank you okay. so much. And well, we God will do that. And, and maybe we'll get your son up. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. All Bye right. Everybody. And, until next time, uh, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.